you know, life is not going to come to a standstill if I don't agree with you. Or, like real you know, love. Like, look, I got to know the person. <laughs> gay marriage, gay rights, homosexuality. My opinion is, um, like, empathy. I guess I have an opinion. Empathy. They don't call you fickles. Someone anymore. asked, what, what is it like to lose your dad, someone who's younger than me, to still have their parents? I said, well, it's kind of like the railing on the porch. And I never use the railing. Never. There's okay? good knock but now the railing's gone, and every time I go Getting up, to know somebody, support. thinking the thoughts of the other might yes. be a hugely healing thing and might be exactly what we need healthcare, taxes, right now. Monuments, oh, oh, my God. Political correctness. <laughs> really Obama, appreciate it, and uh, it's really fun for me, and um, I feel really, really lucky Same here. to have this time. Same here, John. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Welcome to Like You, where I talk to real people about their lives, what they believe, and why they believe it. My name is John Zelson. Subscribe on any podcast service or listen from the website at likeyoupodcast.org. These conversations are not about agreeing or convincing. It's about trying to understand another person. If you'd like to help out with this experiment in understanding each other, please go to the Contact Me section of the website and volunteer to be interviewed. No preparation is needed. I want you just the way you are. This is episode two. As always, while you're cleaning or making dinner, I'd like to introduce you to someone new. Hear about their life experience, and then how they've sorted out the issues of the day. This is the first part of a two-part interview. Please enjoy meeting Wes. Where were you born? I was born in Syracuse, New York. Uh, do you mind giving me an age range? Uh, no, I'm 56. Are your parents still around? Uh, no. In fact, uh, my uh, mother uh, died this past uh, May, so that uh, my dad died a couple of years ago. That's right. Because you were, we had to delay this a little because you were doing some executor of will stuff. Correct. Is that a is that a sensitive topic for you? Uh no. Alright. How many brothers and sisters? Uh two brothers, one sister. Did your uh when you were brought up, did you guys go to church? Do you have a religious kind of foundation? Uh only in the elementary school days and it was uh not what I'd call a committed experience by my parents, more perfunctory. Uh and it wasn't until I got into my early 50s, I started to make a point of going to church. That's interesting. So now, at this point in your life, uh, you're going to church regularly. I, I, I am. I am, yes. Is there a denomination? Uh, no, no. Uh, I've participated in both Baptist and uh, Jehovah Witnesses, I guess, yeah, Jehovah Witnesses uh, services, um, but uh, no preference of the time. What did something happen that made you think that it that that should be a bigger part of your life? Uh yes, uh things slowed down a little bit. During the my 20s through 40s, I was more concerned about, you know, seeing the world, experiencing different things, taking on the challenges that I had envisioned for myself. But I always had a nagging, you know, question in the back of my my, my mind as to um you know, is this right? You know, is there something missing? And finally, in my 50s, I had a chance to start looking more closely at that. And um, 
that caused me to explore uh, religious uh, topics more concretely. Are you are you still in that exploration phase, or, or have you arrived somewhere in this the spirit with the spiritual questions? No, I'm I'm still in in route. Um, there, there's there's two sides of it. One is the information gathering side that I that I've largely gone through, but um, I feel very comfortable in my understanding of uh, the Christian text. So I'm I'm really not uh, drawn to kind of the college level discovery of understanding Buddhism and Shintoism and mm-hmm. Confucianism, all the other stuff. Uh, it's more the Christian uh, ethos, but um, there's a matter of uh, you know, kind of objectively confronting that by looking it in the face and deciding to open your heart to what you suspect is there. And that's the piece that still keeps me uh, only partway down the road to where I'm going. Would you say uh, it's a sense of there being a God or or a spiritual kind of existence that that is drawing you in? Yes, you know. yes. In fact, actually, that's one of the uh, passages in the Bible which talks about, you know, you're coming to God or Christ or whatever name you wish to use, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, that he draws you to him. Okay, so it's not like you're going to turn over a rocket. (laughs) There he is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that you have this growing sense that you're coming to him until finally you feel his presence or, you know, the presence suffusing you. Uh, and that you know now uh, what others have been searching for and may not even be aware of exists, you now have it as part of your life. My wife's like that, okay? Um, she doesn't have the questions that I have. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that one day that I achieve what she has. For some people, in their religious views, it's important to them that the Bible is a a very literal um, yep. For other people, they they process these stories with a um, like purely as like parables and spiritual kind of um, uh, ideas that they're supposed to just think about, and they're not worried at all about the seeming contradictions. Where where, where do you fall in that? About in the middle. Uh, I'm familiar with both extremes. Okay, I think the. The latter, the folks of Europe, morally as, as good stories of trying to lead in the right direction, uh, can run afoul of never getting the point that uh, at the end of the day, you can't stay where Wes is in the middle of the road, uh, halfway to his destination, wondering whether he believes in God or not, because that question is fundamental to what happens uh, in Revelation. Okay, you need to make that choice. Okay, so seeing the Bible as many parables. Uh, or stories that are good guideposts, like the golden rule for conducting your life, is insufficient. Okay, the Bible is meant to notify you that you are owned by something else, and that something else wants you to acknowledge that and to align your life in accordance with that. Where the folks who are very concerned about the literalism, they they tend to need that certitude at that level. Okay in order to fill an emptiness in their own life because they lack their own rules for how they guide themselves. And so if the rule book has errors in it, okay, or if the rule book um, you know, is not fully understand, understood, then they feel like th- they're lost. And that, too, 
is uh, an insufficient outcome. Uh, so I, I'm familiar with both of them, and that's why I say I, I fall in the middle. That I, I think there's a place where you can achieve the objective of making the answer the question for yourself: Do you believe in God, and that Jesus Christ is uh, the Savior sent to uh, redeem us, or not? And then, how are you or aligning your life to reflect that, either by spreading his name, Jehovah's name, um, or conducting your life in a, in a Christian manner. You know, what are you doing to show love for your fellow man? Uh, if, are you really doing that? That is the, the objective you need to achieve. Uh, and either extreme misses that point. Yeah. There's so much rich material there. And I know we won't spend the whole time yeah. on, on the... Um on that aspect, that's that's pretty important to you right now. Is that a fair? Like that is a part of the way what you're thinking about every day. I I like it to be. <laughs> it, it's not it's not there yet. I mean, right now work is primarily right, right, right. the driver of my life, and my family. But uh, I would like it to be more prominent. And I in, invest uh, far more effort in my fifties than I did in previous decades in understanding. Right, I want to I want to know about that too. I want to know about your um like. Uh, the, the your misspent youth. Uh, were you guys uh, poor, middle class? Uh, from, when in, in years? Oh, no, we were we were very poor. My father was not, although he still had a great start in life. Um, he graduated from a major university uh, at I think at age twenty. Okay, so he got off to a great start. Um, he was unable to uh, integrate uh, into. Uh, the mainstream of uh, modern society uh, during the 40s, 50s, and 60s in, in a successful way. Okay, He participated in it. He was present. He observed it, but he didn't benefit from it. And so his career was very sinusoidal with very few peaks and, and a lot of well, mostly bumps on the way down. And um, that was the environment in which we grew up where we were um, quite poor um, and um, uh, vulnerable to you know, circumstances of uh, the weather and life. It was more like living in the 1800s than it was the 1960s and 70s. Well, you know, oh my God! What was his business? Uh, he had a he didn't have a business, but his degree in engineering. Um, but he and he had a very bumpy career um, filled with. Uh, you know, traumatic events like the oil crisis, which caused companies to fail, as well as his own behavioral conduct at companies that caused him to get fired and then therefore go on, you know, unemployment for long periods of time or nothing. Um, and uh, it, it just his his he just never benefited from the expansion of American society that took place between the '60s and the '90s. Um, and we, that's the time when we were growing up. Did you like your father? I know it's a weird question. Like. Um, I love my father. Um, I don't respect uh, many of the choices that he made in his life that you know were material, not just for how they affected us, the family, but uh, in terms of why he made them himself. Okay, um, you know, he, he you know, we're talking about the impact of the childhood upon my brother and myself, but you know, his life made ours look pretty good. Uh, you know, his father died when he was ten years old of pneumonia. Uh, and he lived in a rural environment with his mother and a few sisters on a farm, okay? As a 10-year-old boy trying to be man of the family in rural New York, that was a tough road to hoe. Uh, but he was able uh, to fight his way through that without dying, 
um, and uh, to make it to a major university and, and to get a degree there. That's so amazing. It would, yeah, it would seem that you know, going into the late 30s that he had um, uh, made a tremendous transition, okay? But life has, you know, different courses to it, okay? And he, the first course, he had tremendous trauma, okay, and tremendous success, but the successive courses after that um, weren't so good for him, okay? But he, he, in a way, I guess I was more like him, and it never really bothered him, okay? So the fact that he never really was a success, he never really had a stable home life, a place he could call his own, a car that worked, <laughs> never troubled him greatly, okay? Very frustrating for kids, you know, to be fixing cars along the road in the middle of a snowstorm on a regular basis, but um, for him, it never really bothered him, okay? Are you um, confident of that, that it didn't bother him, or that, that maybe he didn't show it? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he, once again, you know, came from a background where uh, you know, life was hard, you know, lots of his relatives died uh, from diseases that today we, pneumonia is a problem, I thought it was an annoyance in childhood, scarlet fever, mm -hmm. pneumatic fever, you know, whooping cough, you know, these are things that, you know, are words in a book, okay, but they were reality of his life, and the fact that he didn't have to worry about them and he got in his 30s, 40s, and 50s, made everything else look pretty <laughs> darn good. He just didn't care. You know, cancer is a whole other story, but that was constant. Um, but no, he he was um, he was you know, one who's meant to endure. Okay, he's meant to endure, and he didn't look deeply into um, uh, his own choice. I was talking about the respect about the choices. Mm -hmm. You know, he let his uh, inclinations, his instincts, guide him, um, because I think that actually helped him not have to. Uh, reflect upon some of the choices he made, okay? And it's those choices that he made and what the instincts that he used to guide him that I say, I, I didn't respect that. These things should require more thought because it wasn't just your, his interests that were at stake here. There are other people's interests at stake that theoretically, you know, should he care for them, he should have borne in mind, but he lacked the discipline or interest to do so. So he was having troubles in his professional life and he, and yep. he was running into all these um, inconveniences and, you, and he wouldn't maybe didn't consider himself a success what I'm wondering about is that can lead a person to be frustrated it can leave a lead a person to um, kind of act out in anger uh, to their uh, like loved ones it but he might not but also he didn't reflect so maybe uh, w w did you see anger in him was did he in that way? No, no. He would have liked, he's, he's like the people who play the lottery, you know, if, and they prefer that, okay, because if, if they lose, they didn't really invest much, they didn't risk much, and therefore losing was not a big deal. If they win, well, there's a whole other life on the other side of the <laughs> rainbow there. So it, it all, it's all good, right. okay? I don't have to think too much about it either way. I'm hoping um, for better. And, that's, that's right, and, and, that, and that's how he was. So, um, uh, Give a for instance, okay, like we were starting to do okay in the 60s, very early 60s. You know, he was an engineer working for NASA, um, but he um, uh, he did not have good situational awareness or, or understanding of protocols. Well, yeah, he did, but he, he could tune them out. And one little vignette event was that he was sitting there eating lunch at his desk, and he had his feet up on the desk in the office while he was eating his lunch, okay? Very few people were around, but his boss happened to walk by, and 
I said to him, why don't you take your feet off the desk, okay? To which my father responded, I thought I was hired for what I knew, not for how what I looked, okay? The boss said, you're absolutely right. Take your feet off the desk, okay? <laughs> well, two weeks later, he used to pay, paperwork that told him that he either had to transfer back to Syracuse from Florida or he was going to be terminated from the company. Now, no one ever said those two events were linked, but they were, okay? But what my father didn't realize is that when you're sitting in a professional environment, you know, in a suit and tie, and you've got your feet up on the desk, that reflects something about you, okay? Is that the reflection you want to convey to your superiors or even your peers, okay? What are you really trying to do here? This is my house, my environment, or am I trying to say that, you know, I can behave any way I want that I think is appropriate regardless of the impact uh, on others, okay? What are you really saying here? Well, my father was probably trying to convey some message but didn't think about the consequences of that and didn't think about what those consequences might mean to his family. So he didn't make a prudent decision. And then he compounded matters. And when someone actually had the termity to point out that he was behaving inappropriately, he smart-mouthed them, okay? And given the political environment of the day, he lost his job for it, although he didn't realize that until he was 20 years later, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, but that's what happened. He didn't want. He he had the ability to look in the future and to see himself, you know, in different ways, so that he could avoid these problems. But he didn't. Okay, because he lacked the discipline of the will, the emotional um, uh, sensitivity to do so. Uh, he, he just failed. Okay, and those things. Uh, boomerang back on him in bad ways. Okay, this is just one of a series of events like that, okay, which also affected the family. However, because, you know, a large part of it is due not to bad luck or, or the actions of mal actors, mm -hmm. it was basically due to his own stupidity, um, he, he didn't let it bother him. He didn't, about, so he, he didn't become bitter that he never was a captain of industry uh -huh. or a wealthy man. It, it just didn't factor. This, that's how it was. You know, it didn't have to turn out badly like it did. You know, probabilistically, if you thought it through, I would have said, look, the probability is so much higher. A conduct like that is going to cause you heartache that it's not. So don't, don't play with those odds. But my dad would have to, he, he couldn't see it that way. He said, oh, yeah, but that will affect my identity of myself and become a self-respect issue. So I need to act like an ass in order to validate that I'm not an ass. And somehow that, that's worth whatever consequences it may yield, which was bad reasoning. And it just, just he never had a father to tell him, don't reason like that. So was he, he a, did. Was he a stubborn, was he stubborn and prideful in part? Ah, uh, you no, know, as a matter of fact, because that's one thing that I, oh, I love my father is that we had conversations later on in life. I was in my 20s and 30s about things that he had done and said and position to take. Because I was curious about it and I wanted to get his impression because yeah. I only had the vantage point of being 12 or 15 at the time. And in those conversations, he was actually quite humble uh, and and. Uh, acknowledging of his faults and how he did things and, and probing the limits of why he did the things he did and, and understanding the consequences of those actions to his family and so forth. You know, he, he didn't deny any of that. He was quite um, uh, comfortable uh, acknowledging his culpability and all of that. But on another level, in the same person, that doesn't mean he changed it at all. That, right, if you had to do it all over again, public wouldn't change. <laughs> that seems, it's a little novel. I expect 
people to rationalize in a way where they, they push away ideas that... Right, but because they don't like it, you're going to embarrass me. I'm not going to like myself when I look in the mirror. <laughs> right, but he no, didn't, he didn't care. Dad. Yeah, I look in the mirror here. My God, what a shit staring back at me. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, guys. I really didn't mean to do this to you, but guess what? When I turn around and look back in the mirror, I'm still going to be a shit. Okay. Did, um, <laughs> a two-part question. How did he show love when you were young, and uh, did he give you any actual advice for life? Uh, okay, how did he show love when I was young? Um, he was he was remote. He wasn't completely old school of the you know children are to be seen and not heard. Um, but uh, you know he was uh, definitely the you know Ozzie and Harriet wanted the Ozzie and Harriet life of coming home and dinners on the table kind of guy. Uh, until he got divorced, and that took place when I was about 10, 11 years old. Um, then he, he, there was no Ozzy and Harriet, uh, just Ozzy. Um, and, but, and, then after, and that's when I became more conscious of how he showed love, and um, uh, it was in two ways, okay? Uh, one, the kind of the, the oral interaction I think you're, you're hitting at in terms of passing on wisdoms or guidance to us, okay? And there were, there were pieces of that we can talk about if you like. Um, but the other was more in, you know, uh, investing the time, okay? Uh, you know, they say, what about dads that, you know, dads don't necessarily, uh, they, they use their example to teach you how to be a man, okay, or, or a good citizen, a good person, whatever, okay? And he would invest the time, um, he suddenly had it because his career wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, by doing things like showing up to all the band concerts, all the sporting events. I was very active in sports uh, in high school, um, and so was my brother in terms of musical events. So he would he would attend all of those events. Okay, and at the time it was just kind of noted that he was there and he was participating. But uh, reflecting back upon it, it had meaning. Okay, it meant something to me. If he had not been there, it would have hurt me. Okay, and the fact that he was there, um, uh, I'm grateful for even now. In fact, when my father passed, uh, someone asked, "What what is it like to lose your dad?" Someone who's younger than me still had their parents. I said, "Well, it's kind of like the railing on the porch." And I said, "What do you mean by that?" I said, "Well." I've got this porch, and I've got the staircase going up to the porch. It's got a railing on it, and I walk up that staircase to the porch, which is like 15 feet above the ground, all the time, all the time. And I never use the railing, never, okay? But now the railing's gone, and every time I go up that staircase to the porch, I feel a little vulnerable, even though I never needed it. Yeah. I wish it was still there, you know? You know when families do get around, if they're reminiscing, there's often a story that everyone knows about each person. I was wondering if you could remember one of those stories uh, that your all your family would know about you uh, when you're young. Oh yeah, they, they they all remember. Sure, yes, but there are those. Okay, that kind of you know capture um, snapshots of of who we are. Like for example, one story all my family knows is. That uh, when I was an infant, uh, like 15, 18 months, something like that, um, I was living in Florida. I, I climbed up on the ladder on the house and uh, took off my dinner and would fill it with stones and throw it at people going by on the sidewalk. 
And uh, not bad. That made me legendary, not just to my family, but people <laughs> in the community. That is. Uh, I think that is a good one. That is a. Uh, I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> um, do you have an earliest memory? Earliest memory, yeah. um, yeah, in terms of you know cogentness, uh, yes, it would be in, in Florida of um, after a hurricane had gone through, all of these beetles covering our um, uh, sliding glass doors, and then hundreds of blue jays coming shortly thereafter to eat them all. And so I began to you know think that maybe those stories that Mommy's reading me about the Bible about. You know, how these plagues come through is true. First, you have a horrible storm, then these beetles cover everything, and then the blue jays eat them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was probably two, two and a half at that time, um, and uh, I, I still remember very vividly watching the the sliding glass doors slowly get covered with hundreds, thousands of beetles. Okay, and then they're slowly dissolving as all this flight of blue fills the sky around our house, eating all the beetles. It was very odd. I'd like to relive it again just to see what it was really like to, to adult eyes. Yeah. So your mom was reading you Bible stories when you were two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Before we went to bed, sure, she'd have that children's Bible, and there would be pictures in it and things like that. I remember she'd, she'd read stories to us out of it. I don't think I was paying attention a great deal, but two years old, what can you really do? But she was. But it's... Yeah, that went on until probably I was four or five. Yeah. And then, is there a reason why that stopped? Did she change? Uh, yeah, there's, you know, we, we had to move back to New York, um, uh, and there was all sorts of thrash around that, and I don't think we ever got a rhythm after that. We came back to New York, we were in North Syracuse for a few years, but uh, we quickly left there and, and went out to the the uh, countryside here in Madison County, um, uh, to a place called Erieville after that and um uh the the rhythm of life started to accelerate okay and i also think that um it was reflecting the the downward acceleration of my father's career um uh, opportunities and uh concurrently the acceleration of the financial stresses on their relationship and and once you have those financial stressors uh focusing upon uh normal family life activity becomes very difficult and, and much lower priority for everyone involved. You, you divorced, your parents divorced when you were around 10. Mm-hmm. I, you think that, I think you're saying that around five you guys moved and there were more financial stressors and it was, that was a real distraction from kind of a stable home life. Yeah, I mean, it was all present beforehand, but you know, I was not conscious. For example, the day, um, my parents got married. My dad got fired from a job the day before. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, he didn't tell his wife that. So, uh, you know, the day before he gets married, he gets fired. Okay. But that was, uh, you know, an, an issue that was in the offing before that day. It didn't just happen because the company, you know, went bankrupt and they had to lay everyone off. Okay. It was his conduct that got him into trouble. Um, <laughs> And uh, so he went on his honeymoon, and when he kind of came back, he had to tell her that, look, I don't have a job, i got to sort this out, but it'll be okay. 
well, he just got married, and this guy's telling me he, he just lost his job, okay? Um, I can imagine that was on selling occurrence, but all that was taking, before, taking place before I was born, okay? So there was some ups and downs prior to my being five years old, but... Uh, at five years old, uh, we were living in North Syracuse, I started being conscious of the milestones of the downward trend of this uh, roller coaster ride, right? And, um, uh, I th- and, and by now, this has been going on for you know, five, six years in their marriage. Okay, so it's starting to have some accumulated um, suffering or scars, okay, which five years later led to the dissolution of the marriage. As a kid uh, experiencing that, um, that that can be a lot for a kid to take in. Do you remember uh, what that was like, and have any, if if it's okay, if it, any particular moments in that as their marriage falls apart that struck you? Oh yeah, well, struck me. Um, there are certain you know. For just poignancy's sake, I mean, having your mother go out on the porch in the middle of the night and scream at the town that you know, her husband's beating her—that'll that, leave a memory. Was um, was he beating her? No, he was not. Uh, but you know, you're talking about negotiation. Once out of the marriage, so uh, when people have positions, not forget this is in the day and age where you know. Uh, the role relationships and relative power between men and women was very different than it is today. Okay, there are many more uh, procedural and legal protections for women than there were back in the 60s and 70s, which, you know, my mom's generation built, okay, through their experiences, okay, which she was going through in her marriage was not atypical. It was the rule, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and, uh, uh, but at that time, okay, uh, this was the one outlet that she had, okay, and if, if even if it wasn't, you know, fair or accurate, it, she's not, she wasn't concerned with that. She was concerned with effective, okay, <laughs> and that this embarrassed her spouse so that he would get out of the house and she could have her own life, and th- that would be effective, and, and she's going to do it, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess, you know, this also falls in the category of, you know, memories of me that uh, all my siblings recall, Um because some of them observed it and the other ones just heard about it later on. Uh, but, you know, this, the thrash of any divorce is always a painful exercise and there's all sorts of um, memories that came in around that. However, it became clear uh, to me at my young age that you know, this was going nowhere, okay? Uh, and it was just caught up in legal red tape. And my dad had what I would call a blocking strategy that was being successful, okay, that he could deny her the divorce, okay, but he had no, you know, future strategy for making things better either. He just wanted to stop her, okay, and and that just led to a stalemate, okay, and, you know, relationships really aren't like DMZs. You can't stay that way forever, so I asked my dad when he was back visiting from a job he then had out in Albany to sit down and talk with me, and in that conversation, I laid out to him that, look, you know, um, we're at this juncture where everyone's unhappy and it's your and mom's fault, okay? But there's a way out of here. Uh, mom has made clear uh, to us kids that if she, you know, uh, uh, that you, you stated to her that if you get two of the kids, okay, you're willing to give her a divorce. Is that true? 
And there was some circling around in that, but eventually he came back and said, yes, that's what I've told her. Now, at 10 years old, I didn't know why that was the case, but you know, later on I figured out it was just a tactic that he was giving her Sophie's choice. You can't pick which two kids you want to give up to your, to your ex-husband, so therefore you'll never make that choice, so therefore my father gets what he wants, you'll never get your divorce, okay? But that's why I said, look, you know, Paul and I are willing to go with you to Albany. You know, at the time, I had no idea what that meant, okay? It was just a concept. But I said, if you're willing to accept that, then I think we have a deal. Let's, let's end this. Okay, and as I'm having this conversation with my father, I look out the side of my, you know, turn my head, I see my mom standing in the kitchen looking at this through the dining room, listening in very intently to this conversation, okay? I, I'd never seen such um, interest, you know, and, and, and anticipation, I guess would be the word, for my mother before, okay? And my dad agreed to it, okay? So the terms of their divorce settlement were agreed to in the living room between my father and myself. Um, and it ended that, that period of our lives of misery um, and started a whole new period of less painful misery. But um, uh, it, wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't a uh, sunny day after that, but it was, it was better than what we had. Uh, that is, uh, that's an amazing story. So basically you as a 10-year-old um, were the one to negotiate a settlement sort of abstractly because as a 10-year-old, you don't know all the implications of what you're saying. You, you would up That's and right. go to Albany. Yeah. yeah, I just knew my mom said this is what she's been told and that the solution is you've got to have two kids go. And then I, wanted to, I knew I needed to confirm that with my dad, and he did. And so we got, he answered it, can we now end this? That's how I processed it. But that's one of the topics that later on in my 20s and 30s I wanted to talk to my dad about uh, to understand what he remembered of that, because yeah. I remembered it. I still remember sitting there, leaning forward in the chair, talking to him. Okay? <laughs> but I wanted to get his side of it, and he said he felt uncomfortable. He had never felt that uncomfortable. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, I was ashamed. I said, what do you mean? He says, I said, my son's sitting there helping me find the conclusion I should have found myself. Right. I said, well, I can't argue with that. I mean, the fact that you, you put us through that, and, uh, and as it came out of the conversation, he was just looking to frustrate my mom's objectives, okay? He, he didn't like being hurt by her wanting to leave him. People didn't get divorced, right, in his generation. They don't, don't get divorced. Divorce. Divorce is anensima, okay? Right. And so he wasn't going to let her get that, but he didn't realize by denying her divorce, he was uh, requiring something worse. I am... Um, um, I had heard enough to say, I don't think I like your father. <laughs> that would make me really angry, right? That this desire to be a nuisance to one person would have such a consequence for the innocent children who the adults are supposed to be watching out for. I would think that would make you very angry. Are you angry? No, no. no go back to the, you know, you... We kind of talked about this before where, you know, my dad was so focused upon what he wanted for himself, okay, he didn't think about whether it was in the long to best interest of others. That wasn't part of his makeup. He was about what, you know, he wanted, okay, and uh, he didn't look at that from the third person perspective as to whether that was really consistent with other goals and objectives he had for his wife, okay, I mean, did he marry her realizing that, look, if I, if I 
continue on the course I normally pursue, I'm going to make my wife miserable. Do I want to make her miserable? No, make her happy. Well, that requires you to change your behaviors. Well, no, I don't want to change my behaviors. Okay. Yeah. He, he didn't, he didn't look at those, uh, those issues together. Okay. He would say, you know, I want to have, I recognize my current behavior makes mutually exclusive. Okay. My wife's happiness. Okay. Uh, so therefore, I shouldn't meet, I shouldn't marry her, or, or I need to change my behavior. He wouldn't think those things through. Okay, so I don't fault, I don't fault him for that. It's just the maturity that he reached in his life, and there are factors in his life, like the loss of his father that I mentioned, but also his relationship with his mother, and just the dynamic of the 1920s and 30s in America, and how people thought about things and approached things, that had their own their own rhythm, their own color, their own flavor. It's very different than what I was raised in. It's very different what my kids are being raised in. Um, you know, a lot of these issues that we're talking about would be abstract to my kids, okay? You know, a dad who doesn't think about what's best for his kids, what, what, what's that? Is that possible, dad? I mean, they, they wouldn't know that because I've tried to not expose them to that kind of behavior. But that doesn't mean that my father was an evil man, okay, a bad guy. No, it's only when his interest became uh, in conflict with the interest of others uh, <laughs> that he'd have to be sensitive <laughs> to that to act on it, and he, he didn't want to. That's actually yeah. how I define good and bad. It's you only really see it when your interests are in conflict with others. But I I think it's interesting that you're able to process it analytically and you you're able to get step back and get perspective of how the challenges he had growing up and you're able to not be angry you're telling me you are not angry at this person no absolutely not and the thing is what we're talking about here though this being able to see the contradictions and, and act on them appropriately yeah that is a life struggle yeah okay yeah. that is a maturity issue that is very difficult can i tell you a little story on this okay, please <laughs> okay so um, you know, I, I'm my father's son to some extent, okay, if not the contrapositive, I guess, and then I went through my 20s and 30s and 40s looking after my career to advance myself, and I was very successful in that, okay, uh, well, my father was very unsuccessful, but I reached a point in time where I was making an awful lot of money, a lot of inter influence, I was basically calling myself the master of the universe, okay, mm -hmm. and I was not very happy, though, okay. And I didn't really know why, but I just knew I wasn't very happy. And so did I go on to the next job? I, the next job was the C-suite, okay, becoming a, a, a CXO someplace, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. Um, and at that time, you know, life's kind of a funny thing of intersections. Uh, a woman who I had carried a torch for for like 20 years, okay, um, I found out was still on the market <laughs> uh, back here in New York. I may have told you this already, but no. um, I, I decided I'm going to go check that out, okay? Didn't have a very uh, clear plan about this, uh, and that's just one of the things I liked about it because I'm usually a very planful person. But I came back to New York. I trashed my career and came back to New York to see if there was a future for us. Well, the end of the story after 18 months is that the answer was no, there wasn't. But the, the, the issue is why? <laughs> why the answer was no, okay? And during our um, uh, time together, okay, uh, what became clear is that while um, we both cared for one another, okay, and I, I wanted to marry her, okay, 
and she definitely wanted to marry me. Okay, he was very uh, clear about that. Um, <clears throat> the the reasons why um, were problematic. Okay, for example, uh, in her way of wanting to get married, it was married with conditions. Okay, I want to marry you, but. Um, because I've got these kids with some other guys, we can't leave the state, okay? We've got to stay here, okay? So if you want to get back in the career field, or if you, you know, the work requires you to leave the state, that's going to create a problem for us. We've got to be able to live with inside the con constraints that I have in my life, okay? And I was coming at things from the standpoint of, this is one example, but I was coming at things from the standpoint of, look, you know, I, I am not giving you a constraint-based uh, proposal here. If I want to get married, it's because I'm no longer holding on to the edge of the pool. I'm swimming out in the center of the pool and asking you to join me. So all the risks, all the constraints, all the issues of life are not important. What's most important is you and I being together. I'm willing to give up everything I have and have taken demonstrable steps in that direction to be with you. And my question to you is, can you join me in the center of the pool? And she couldn't. She couldn't, okay? And she was so tied to where she was that really her affection, her desire for me was subject to all the other constraints that made up her life that were only dimly aware to her, okay? Um, and we reached this, this, this contradiction, okay? You don't want me enough to give up everything else, which is what I am offering, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But you can't have me and all of your constraints, too, because you're going to shackle me, okay? I've got to be enough for you, not all the constraints. And she couldn't defeat that reason. She couldn't objectively she recognized the, the, the soundness of it. But the answer was clear, that we can't be together, okay? It's a... Uh, um, Do you follow? Yeah, you, yeah, to, oh. To. Okay, and, and that's, that's, our situation is not atypical. We were just conscious of it. But it's very mm -hmm. common. There's something uh you are not risk averse and like it sounds like you process this through and then you want to go to the middle of the pool right it, it, do you think that applies even to your kind of your spiritual journey like you're um you, you might have done a long process of information gathering because you're sort of analytical i think that's a fair statement but then after you do all your analysis you're you're okay to take some risk. <laughs> is that is that how you see yourself? Um, yes, uh, and and, <laughs> and uh, with a qualification. Okay, um, a is that I, I I recognize that some issues just have to be leaps of faith. Okay, so the, the whether you're comfortable with 10% of the analysis you need to do or 90% of the analysis you need to do, at some point in time, you got to take the leap of faith, okay? And, and mm -hmm. I, I recognize that. And you've got to be willing to risk everything regardless of how much homework you've done, okay? You know, with Napoleon, you say plans are nothing, but planning is everything. Okay? So you prepare yourself for the leap of faith you must take, okay? Right. But the other side of it is that... Um, Even when you um, uh, do your homework and are prepared and, and take your leap of faith, there's no guarantee how it's going to turn out, okay, particularly when you're dealing with other people, okay? And what you may find yourself 
facing is a situation where you can grasp, you can take the risk and having your grasp that which you want, okay? But the fact of the matter is if you take it and it's not right for the other person, by taking it, you will lose the person you were. And so you've got to recognize that even when you take your risk, it's not just a single bilateral outcome where you either win or you lose, okay? You may have to choose to implode, okay? And I explained that to one lady once uh, at a dinner. Um, God, this is back when I was in my 20s, uh, when I was seeing someone else, and she was very attracted to me and was being quite overt about that and, and made me solicitations that uh, were um, very clear, Okay, and I said, you got to understand something, because I knew she knew that I was involved with something else, is that if I were to take you up in an offer, I would cease to be what you value. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you get what you want, and then you find out you got nothing. Okay, is that what you want? And she said, I say no. So it's better, okay, for me to be the person that, is, that you're attracted to and not have me than for me to cease to have those attractive qualities and for you to have me, right? Which is, which is, once again, a common issue that people face in different flavors across the spectrum, regardless of <clears throat> religion or political party or anything else. Right. The, having the will to see that and humbly accept it is another issue entirely. There's a certain wisdom to understand that. Because if you're in a moment, if you're young, and you're attracted to someone, right? And right? that's a pretty powerful draw. But you're saying that even in that scenario... You were able to see, oh, this is going nowhere. All I'll do is compromise something really important to my Exactly right. And I'd stuff. hurt her. Right. I'd hurt her. I, I'd see that look in her eyes of, I got you. This is great. But I, I now know that you're less than I thought you. You're no longer the, the, the uh, not the, how do I want to put this, the, the archetype that I thought you were. Okay. And I said, no, I'd rather, regardless of whether it's an archetype in your mindset, I'd rather be that person that you look up to than to be something less. Okay, but the same thing applies to me with this woman that, you know, I came back to New York for, okay? You know, I'd rather be the memory, okay, uh, of someone who actually loved you and wasn't using you, okay? And because he loved you, he left you so you could be free to find someone who could love you the way that you can be comfortable in, okay? Then for me to um, uh, give you what you want, and also give you misery the rest of your life. And, and these themes, I I gather that you're saying these themes have been percolating in you even in your twenties and thirties. Like you were you were aware of those tugs and pulls in life. Oh, what is it? Socrates says, "Unexamined life is not worth living." Right. So. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but, but I, I'm going to say that um, I don't think that uh, I think that people usually have to make the mistake, right? To, to, to process really what it means, to, to really viscerally understand the consequences of certain actions. And, now, I, and, and I'm, I'm not looking for all kinds of details, but have you made the mistakes to, to learn, or were you able to learn by just thinking it through? <laughs> no, no, okay, great question. Actually, as part of my leadership development uh, materials that I use with, uh, when I was in the Army as, as well as in my professional life, I talk about there's three ways that people achieve wisdom, okay? One is through the school of hard knocks, you know, trial and error, okay? Mm-hmm. How most of us learn, making right. mistakes, okay? Two is through academic preparation. They read the great books, okay, with Aristotle to, 
you know, say Thomas Aquinas to, you know, William James, you name it, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and somehow they're able to stitch it all together into a fabric that allows them to uh, figure things out without having to go through the school of hard knocks. Or they have mentors, okay, that can either through example or through word and deed show them how all of the complexity of our, our lives is reconciled into a fabric that's worth having a life. I've been very fortunate uh, to have all three in varying degrees, okay? Um, and uh, all of them have uh, shaped my understanding. But yes, if you, your question is, have I had to screw up in order to learn from my mistakes? Yes, and, and some of them are the more obvious ones, some of the less obvious. For example, an obvious one is a young lieutenant trying to make a road crossing when I was in, uh, the XO of a field artillery uh, company. Um, I failed to account for proper um, police support for moving my unit across a major highway and then watched my career, as I thought, in Surrey as this Honda Civic uh, that was trying to time the stoplights uh, ignored my flashing lights and uh, standing in the middle of the road uh, trying to block them uh, and just ran through the intersection and plowed into the side of a howitzer. Now, a Honda Civic weighs about 2,200 pounds. A howitzer weighs about 22 tons. Uh, it was howitzer one, car zero. Okay. <laughs> Fortunately, no one was killed, but that, that what took there, as I said to myself, well, this is a career-ending event. Okay. And but what ensued in the following two weeks was a tremendous laboratory and leadership and understanding um, uh, that I was exposed to that helped shape my approach to handling difficult situations with people who are working on the imperfect information for the rest of my life. Okay, uh, yeah. Le- learned a lot from that. That's, that's an obvious one. Well, well, well ob- um, I want to hear the obvious one, but I want to know what were some of those uh, you. Uh, okay, specific- for one example, we, we continued on the field exercise, okay? And in the military, what took that car accident that took place, you know, at 5.30 a.m. On, on a, I guess on a Friday morning, um, would set in motion uh, the normal investigations uh, the military does in these matters that would lead to my eventual uh, removal from a leadership position and being kicked out of the Army, okay? But it didn't happen that way, Okay. Instead, what happens, they, they look into the matter, and at the end of it, uh, my commanding officer explained to more, his superiors that he had confidence in this young officer and that the Army need to take one for the team of this and, and let this guy learn from this experience and go on, okay? But um, the, the, the exchanges that took place between him and I and uh, with my commanding officer uh, helped me see that in, in, a, in a proper context. But the, the most poignant element was like the second day afterwards when I'm carrying this giant tick on my back, sucking the life out of me. You know, I'm trying to go about my normal duties, okay? Mm-hmm. And one of my NCOs comes over to me, a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, comes over to me, and, and he notices that I'm, I'm going through the motions, okay? And he says to me, you're doing good, but just remember, all the soldiers are watching what you do, sir. Show them how to do it right. And what he was basically saying is your career is probably over, okay? There's no hope for you any longer here, okay? But that doesn't mean you have to uh, uh, fret about that, okay? This is not the end of your life. You're not going to die. Worst things could happen. You're in the Army. Did you know that? Uh, So show these young boys, these young men, how you take a shot to the face. 
okay, let them know that, that it, it's okay, okay, that there are bigger issues at stake, okay, even if you happen to be what's lost in the transaction, okay. And it, it woke me right up. It was just what I needed. Okay, let me know that, look, I, I, no one's relieved me yet, so I have a, a leadership responsibility young men, and if I do only do one thing, and that is to show them how to lose and lose well, okay, <laughs> I'm going to show them that. Okay, so if they come out with a Jeep and pick me up, and that's the last time any of these guys see me, they'll know up until the moment that Jeep shows up. Yeah, he continued to do his job, and he did it well, and there was no dragging your feet or hesitation or bitching about how unfair life was or anything else, okay? He did his fucking job. And, yeah. and that is what I wanted to leave. It turned out it didn't turn out that bad, okay? <laughs> and I wanted to be uh, able to live up to that standard that that NCO wanted to remind me that I had signed up for for the rest of my career. I am... I am afraid that I wouldn't have stopped to make sure I got that. Uh, I want to talk about parenthood. You've got how many kids? I have four. Uh, two from my wife in a prior marriage, um, and two that my wife and I have had together. If you don't mind me asking, um, have you talked to your kids about sex? Of that? Objectively, the fact of it or all of the colorful tangents dealing with what's appropriate inappropriate behavior or the inappropriate and appropriate you know things to think and feel i've done both okay so with my daughter who's the oldest you know there i, I have not had any discussion her mother uh handled that but mm -hmm. with our oldest son um uh i did two things as one as i asked him the question okay so you know you're getting in class uh how the penis works how the vagina works and how reproduction takes place right you got that done but what about conduct? You know, what about psychology of this? Okay, mm -hmm. and the answer was no. Okay, so well, we had conversations then. I talked and he just looked at me or looked at his hands and felt <laughs> uncomfortable about the whole thing. Yeah. Where I walked through things about, you know, everything from masturbation to what is an appropriate, what is consent? Okay, how do you know when you have consent? What is, who should make the first move? You know, what are the things that are, uh, reason to feel, okay, and reasonable to act on, the two not always having a Venn diagram that overlaps one for one, okay, uh, and that these will be challenges for his maturity and character going forward to make sure that he um, uh, doesn't give up on the delights of life and become a monk in order to avoid making a mistake, uh, but also doesn't become a, a predator, okay? I want to give him some, I, I didn't want my son to feel bad about the fact that he sees pretty girls and, and likes looking at them mm -hmm. and um, uh, want to engage in um, uh, creative sexual exploits with them and feel bad about it at the same time. I didn't want that to happen to him. And the same conversation will happen with my other two sons as they get older. Mm -hmm. what, do you have an age in mind? Uh, 14, 15. I think it's appropriate. You know, they got to get the whole biological aspect kind of moving through their system. And then we can start talking about, you know, why do you have your hands in your pants? <laughs> What's that all about? You know why? You think it's normal? Okay. And guess what? It is for you, okay? A lot of folks, okay? But you got to have a context. One of the things a lot of people are going to see you're you behaving that way. They're going to wonder what's wrong with you, okay? So let, let's talk this through. Uh, there, there's judgment here. <laughs> yes. Do you think that you are smarter than the average person? 
smarter than the average person? No, because I think we all have the same physical structures in our brains. Okay, I think I exert more effort in trying to understand the circumstances in which I find myself than most people do. I think most people just accept it and endure it um, without really knowing why, because sometimes trying to understand it can raise questions that are too painful to look at. But smarter? No. Is it important to you to be a good person? It is. And I know it that is. I know that based on our past, but I, I just want to get it on the table. Yeah, um, because like you, know, you talked about mistakes earlier, that it makes mistakes in order to learn. You know, it's some of those mistakes that remind me of the work I need to do on being a good person, okay? Like, I've got not being an axe murderer down, okay? <laughs> I've got paying my taxes down, okay? So I'm not being a crime, a civil um, criminal, okay? Right, right. Uh, but saying things in the heat of the moment that could uh, bother you a lifetime, still got some work on that, right? That part of being a good person needs some work. What, um, what other kind of metrics do you have around this idea of being a good person? Like, what should a person do to be a good person? Well, uh, I, I don't have, you know, a thesis on this, but uh, you start off with the brass tacks. Of, don't forget, good is being assessed uh, initially by um, your impact upon others. So, you know, obeying the golden rule is a good place to start, okay? Uh, and making sure that your impacts on others are not uh, harmful. But however, life gets more complicated, more colorful is you look at the fact that, you know, what do you do in a situation where, you know, uh, I don't want to harm these uh, five people, but the way I avoid harming them is to harm one, okay? What should I do there, okay? So this gets into the part of being a good person, uh, which is much more difficult, which is, we need to struggle to see more clearly, okay, what is good, what is right and wrong in very complicated uh, scenarios, okay, and it's our duty to do so, and whether it's ethical issues or um, uh, societal technology issues, for example, okay, is um, uh, having autonomous cars on the roadway a good thing? Okay, well, someone argue, yeah, it's going to reduce the, the accident rate from 30,000 deaths in the United States a year to a much lower number, maybe zero. Yes, but that will also lead to putting 2.5 million truckers out of work. Oh, well, a good person doesn't shy away from understanding what the answer to that question is. A good person seeks the answers to those questions so that they can help others align themselves to what is the best for everyone. Okay, another type of, you know, good person is, is abortion a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, when you look at that, it comes down to how you define life. And what about the circumstances of life and rape and incest and all that type of stuff? You know, is it really uh, a, a protection that helps women own their bodies or is it sanctioned murder? Okay. Right now, we just have people yelling slogans at one another, but you know, technology is getting in there where we're going to start answering these questions at a much more refined level. Technology is going to force those choices as to whether that's the right thing to do or not, and it may ask some very uncomfortable questions of people who um, uh, have fixed positions on these topics, either the religious right or the social left. 
uh, whether abortion or the death penalty, whatever is the right thing to do. And these questions, a good person has a duty to understand. That's actually where I was going, and abortion was one of the things I was going to ask you about. I think you've framed the issue. Do you think abortion in the first trimester should be against the law? Um, I, I think that question misses the overarching issue, okay, of, you know, what is at stake here, okay, and what are the interests that need to be reconciled in order to address the issue. I think, you know, when you ask the question, is abortion in the first trimester bad or good or whatever, um, it, it has built into it an assumption that the solution is, is a good outcome, okay? And I haven't done enough thinking in this area, because I'm probably not that good a person, but uh, I have done some reading uh, over the last couple of years of, of various uh, I guess, philosophical tracks on this. And, you know, the question comes up as to why do we do abortions, right? So understanding why we do abortions, what is the objective that it serves, okay? And why would we want to prevent abortions, okay, uh, would be the two primary questions to go after and then try to reconcile and to find out are these two interests, why we do abortions and why would we want to prevent them, uh, reconcilable, okay? And looking at those answers to those questions, that leads to uh, positions that have have substance to them. Otherwise, we just start bellowing about whether it's the first trimester or second trimester or whatever, okay, whether you're black or white or whatever, that, you know, affects our position on these. But our positions are built on sand because we don't why we feel the way we do. Do you follow? I do. Although, I know in life we're required to... Make a make a decision for today, you know, while we sort things out. Um, and I'm going to ask about some other issues um, with a similar kind of sensibility. If you have, but don't let me box you into any corner. Um, I will try one more thing on abortion, though. If there was a uh, representative that you were voting for, and one of them believed abortion is always, I'll give you a little wiggle room, like for rape and incest, it was uncertain, but almost always on legal. They wanted to just close down all abortion. You have another elected rep- representative who um, is a traditional pro-choice, whatever. Would either of those positions prevent you from voting for that person? Uh, neither. No, in either case. And I recognize that the, the both firm positions are positions of the day because they really haven't arrived at them from thinking this through like a good person should, okay? They're, they're politicians, first of all. Um, that almost rules out them being good people. Um, uh, but um, uh, they're just doing what they uh, feel is best, uh, either from a principle standpoint or from a uh, popularity standpoint. And the, the abortion issue in and of itself at this time is not something that I would use as a, um, a red line for either candidate. Uh, do you believe in climate change? They believe that, that sounds like it sounds anathema to the whole idea of climate change because climate change should be independent of the beliefs, should be based upon scientific evidence to prove it. But I like the way you, you're positing that, okay? <laughs> and I do, I, I do, I do believe in climate. Change. I do believe the climate is changing, and I think it's healthy and normal and well within side historical tolerances. Now, there's a great many people who believe that climate change is a unique event of the last 20 years, okay? Because no one talked about climate change 20 years ago. They talked about population explosions and other 
problems like nuclear war, but no one was beaten dreaming about climate change 20 years ago. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's a fixation that, that has some currency today, okay? But, um, and they had Al Gore's In the Inconvenient Truth video, which um, I, I did watch, okay? I, I found reasonable entertainment. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it, it's, it's merely an enthusiasm. It's a fad, just like uh, population explosion was a fad of the 1960s and 70s. Um, I, I think it will go by the boards in time. Um, it'll just be one of those fads of modern industrial society or post-industrial society. So... I think you're saying you don't believe that. I, I'm saying that even if it dies, okay, first of all, is the climate changing? Yes, it, it has to, okay. Uh, whether what the causal agents of it are um, is, is argumentative. I mean, the, the, the fundamental premise of climate change is that it's man-made drivers of the climate change. But the fact of the matter is I think climate change is a normal healthy cycle of the planet. I mean, at one point in time, we were a frozen ice ball, right? Like 600 million years ago or something like that. Everything was frozen solid, okay? But then it all thawed out. People call that bad climate change. It thawed out. No, we want to freeze it all back up. Uh, but then during the time of the dinosaurs, okay, this is one of the things about Al Gore's video that we don't get into. is something called Phanerozoic Data. Okay, you know, he only presents data for the last 600,000 years. Well, how about we go back 600 million years and see how our temperatures today and our levels of CO2 and all this look compared to the age of the dinosaurs or the woolly mammoth and things like that. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're, we're in a, actually a cooling period right now, which is having a slight little bump, okay, as it goes up, you know, two or three degrees Celsius over the last 100 years. Uh, in that context, this is, this is a non-issue, but where, we're all excited about it. Uh, where, where do you get your information from on climate change? Uh, well, off the Internet for the most part, okay, uh, which has access to all sorts of, you know, way publications, you know, from magazines and things like that, but also uh, research, okay. Um, but um, um, that would be the primary source of just Internet searches. My understanding of it is that, the scientific consensus is that I mean you've you've heard this a million times I'm sure oh yeah oh yeah is that um, you know we are producing pollution it's trapping heat and that is going to make craziness like it's going to make crazy happen but well, you don't for us but for the planet you know in the, in the planet and I'm saying let's say, let's say the positive argument okay so mankind's activity is generating conditions which are going to cause the temperature on the planet to rise, and that's going to lead to melting glacier. And all that I, I grant all of that, and I would say, so what? Okay? <laughs> the people in Miami and in the Maldives do not have a right to live there forever. Mm -hmm. They don't have a right to stop play tectonics. They don't have a right to stop meteors from coming in. Okay? It's, it's just it's nature. Okay, although it may be harmful to them, okay, the fact of the matter is these things happen. Just because we're living in this point in time where we're conscious about uh, the effects of hydrocarbons in the atmosphere um, doesn't necessarily mean that the change that they're bringing about from, a, from an Earth perspective over the last four and a half billion years is a bad thing. It's only bad for us, okay? I love particularly some subsets of us, not all right. of us. <laughs> uh, well, um... If if there was fires out west that went crazy, and if uh, the the coast of Florida was ravaged, I mean, it would we would run out of the ability. We would run out of money to do disaster relief for those places. Right? I I would recommend you move. 
that's 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 the point. Okay, is that mm-hmm. you know because people have been able to go to what they consider attractive places like the the, the east coast of Florida. Okay, the, the the fact of the matter is that just because that existed for the last five thousand years doesn't mean that gave them a right to expect that the Maldives and Miami Beach would stay the way it is for ten thousand. Yeah. The the last thing on this that I was curious about. Uh, one of the things you were saying is that you thought you felt the Earth was actually on a cooling um, right now. It is trend. Yeah. over the history of the Earth. Yeah. Oh, I see. Like uh, so, um, so the people who are concerned about global warming, quote unquote, they are they are saying that right now, in a, during from the Industrial Revolution on, we have produced enough of these kinds of gases that it's starting to it will impact climate, and that climate impact will create global disturbances. Right. So. But you you are saying that a long 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 time ago, the Earth was even hotter, right? So you're you're not, you're not necessarily disputing this notion that from the industrial period on, that we've created. You're not. You, yeah, you're not I'm not saying, saying that 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 argument is wrong. I'm just saying that it probably doesn't matter. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to move on. Guns. Uh, do you have a position, you know, quote unquote, Second Amendment? Uh, what do you, what do you think about the legality or not of guns? Uh, with regard to the Second Amendment, I, I do interpret it as, I guess, the NRA would that the reason why the Second Amendment exists is so that we can protect ourselves from an all-powerful government. Okay, that it's not to stop bank robbers or to um, uh, shoot pheasants. It, it's meant to. Uh, deal with the fact that uh, governments that are formed among people can become tyrannical, and at some times, in, at points in time, the people need to take up arms and overthrow those governments. Do you think that people should be able to walk around with a handgun, that that is part of our, in a city? Uh, should they be? If that, if that city uh, uh, deems it so, yes, okay, or no, okay? So, for, for example, I mean, um, uh, under the Constitution, of the right to bear arms, okay? And then the question is, well, do states and cities have the right to restrict that, okay? And I think they do, okay? So Washington, D.C., when people get all upset about, um, you know, I, I can't wear this uh, cult on the hip as I walk down the street, well, go someplace else, okay? That city has determined that they don't want to abide by that, okay? Um, but... If you're in your own home in that city, you certainly have the right to protect yourself if that's what your concern is, okay? But um, uh, I think localities have the ability to uh, place limits upon um, uh, what is provided in the Constitution. So I, I think that that concern that people have about, you stepped on my toe, I can't wear this gun in Washington, D.C., is, is a trivial matter, okay? So recognize that you do have the right to bear arms, but that doesn't mean you get to do it under all circumstances that please you, right. okay? You have to recognize that there are other people involved here, and they have the right to establish laws of their own that may impose greater restrictions. That was episode two of Like You. And my name is John Zelson. You've just met Wes. We'll have the last part of Wes's interview in the next episode. Subscribe to Like You to meet more new people. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.